The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hey, folks, and welcome to Typology, the show in which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. I'm Anthony Skinner, producer of the show. We're certainly happy to have you here. Before we go any further, I want to welcome the host of our show, Ian Cron. Ian, welcome to the show. Thank you, Anthony. I am stoked to be here today. We have an interview today that I think is relevant to the time we find ourselves in. You want to talk a little bit about our guest and this interview? Yeah, so we have uh, Michael Hyatt on uh, today. And Michael is the founder and CEO of uh, Michael Hyatt and, and Company. And, uh, you know, he's got this uh, this new book out titled The, uh, the Vision Driven Leader, 10 Questions to focus your efforts, energize your team, and scale your business. And, you know, you would think, okay, well, we're going to have sort of a typical conversation with a new author who's doing a podcast tour probably and trying to get the word out about his book. But I know Mike well enough as a friend that I was not going to allow it to be that, right? Mm -hmm. And this conversation went in directions about the cultural moment, about our political moment, about mm -hmm. our social moment that were so powerful and, you know, talking about visionary leadership and the dearth of it in the world in which we find ourselves in. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't want to preempt and tell people what we spoke about because it's just a surprising interview and it's so full of passion. Yeah. And it's it's so full of, of you know, wisdom. And I think people are going to be like, Oh, I had not anticipated this this conversation moving in the direction that it did. Yes, we introduced folks to this great new book, but we just took the conversation about it to a whole different level. Mm -hmm. It was, I'm. You can see how energized I am. We yeah. just finished the interview, and I'm like, I want to go back and listen to it right now. <laughs> well, and Mike is a passionate guy, and he was extraordinarily passionate in this yes. interview. So. Super excited to get to this interview. So let's go ahead and welcome our guest, Mike Hyatt. Michael Hyatt, my dear friend, welcome to Typology. Thanks, Ian. Good to be back with you again. It is always good to have you. You are a fount of wisdom. And today, you're on the hot seat to do it again. Well, awesome. I, I hope you'll ask some deep penetrating questions that'll get us past this superficial Enneagram 3 stuff. Okay. Well, trust me, we are. Um, I, we're going to obviously talk about your, your new book, The Vision Driven Leader, 10 Questions to Focus Your Efforts, Energize Your Team, and Scale Your Business. We're going to get into that, but I want to start off with this question. What have you learned about threes, you specifically, that has been revelatory helpful or convicting for you since we last spoke about it? Man, that's a good question. Well, I will tell you, like one of the issues at the time we're recording this, uh, George 
Floyd was tragically murdered back on, what was it, that, you know, maybe a week ago, a little more than a week mm-hmm. ago. Yes. And, man, I wrestled, like, for three days about what to say about that. Hmm. And, and so some people just immediately jumped to the conclusion, were you, were you afraid? You know, you just, well, I was kind of afraid, but for probably reasons you don't suspect. And it was this. I was afraid that I might just be kind of virtue signaling as an Enneagram 3, you know, that I'm just going to post something just so people will think better of me. And I didn't want it to be about me. Mm. And I also said, I said in a video that I post, I, I really don't know Jack. You know, I'm on a, a, a journey of learning right now, and I've been reading profusely, and I'm really trying to kind of educate myself and catch up. And I, I, I want to use the hashtag woke up late because that's kind of how I feel, like woke up late. Mm. But, um, but I was also afraid that I would offend my African-American brothers and sisters, you know, by something I would say or not say. I mean, I, there's so much nuance. And I just, I just didn't want to, I didn't want to inflict more damage. And finally, I felt like, you know what? My silence is worse than me stumbling. Now, here's what's really interesting. So I did this, I did this video, it was just a three-minute video where I, you know, talked about George Floyd and how, how horrible that was and how wrong it was and how sorry I was and for my own sense of privilege and complicity in it and all that kind of stuff. So I talked about all that. So I got hundreds of comments, all the comments by my African-American brothers and sisters were generous, encouraging, positive, you know, just, it was awesome. The only shaming comments I got were from woke white people. Interesting. Wow. <laughs> Interesting. Just, like, couldn't believe I, you know, was so late to the party and they were so disappointed in me and all this stuff. But, but one of the things I've noticed, and I, I don't know if this is a function of age or just experience or just the grace of God, I don't know. But it really hasn't bothered me. I've, got, I've gotten some incredibly horrible things that have been said to me, you know, on social media. I've, I've been accused of everything from being a white supremacist to, you know, worse. And, you know, it's just, it's just incredible. Just people mm. anonymously just kind of drive by, drive by shootings, you know. And, of course, I, you know, whatever I'm suffering in this is nothing compared to what, um, African-Americans have suffered in this country for 450 years. Right. Mm. Well, we're going to dive a little bit even deeper into that topic in a, in a few minutes, but I, I do want to start off by asking the question, you know, tell us about the new book, right? This is uh, I think it's a really important topic actually. And actually it's a more important topic today than ever. Mm-hmm. Um, the vision-driven leader, 10 questions to focus your efforts, energize your team, and scale your business. So give us an overview, 50,000-foot overview of what the book is about, who it's for, all that stuff. Yeah, it's basically for anybody in, in leadership. And the premise is that if you're in leadership, there's a presupposition or an assumption that you know where you're going. Because if you're leading, you're taking people with you to a destination. And vision is all about answering the question, where? And so if you don't know where you're taking your organization, where you're taking the entity that you lead, if you can't present a powerful, compelling picture of the future for your organization, then you kind of don't have the right 
to lead. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't mean by that to, to, to shame anybody because the truth is none of us have been taught. I couldn't find a single college or university course on this topic. I could only find a couple of books on the topic. But what I've tried to do in the book is break it down into more like a recipe. Like how can mere mortals, people like us, come up with a compelling vision of the future so that we can say to the organizations, this is where we're going. And when we have a vision, it makes so much, everything so much easier. You know, Stephen Covey said, begin with the end in mind. And that's true for every endeavor, but it's particularly important for an organization. And when you look at the issues of race, for example, you know, what we don't have is, is really clear vision. And we certainly don't have anybody in leadership today, you know, at least in official leadership, that's, that's given us a compelling vision of what could be, right? Mm-hmm. So I would say that the same thing was true uh, with COVID-19, with all the issues that we're struggling with, because people want to jump too fast to strategy. Strategy is how you get from where you are to where you want to go. But until there's alignment on the vision, then strategy is, is kind of a, a fruitless conversation. It's kind of like if I said to my family, let's go on vacation. And somebody just immediately said, well, but, but how are we going to go? We're going to go by airplane? We're going to go by boat? We're going to go by car? Well, kind of the first question is, where are we going? Right? That will inform yeah. the strategy. Mm-hmm. So the same thing is true. I don't care if it's race relations. I don't care if it's, you know, managing a pandemic, whatever it is, there's got to be clarity about the outcome. Then we can have the debate about strategies because some strategies are more effective than others. And, you know, I've, I've said to a lot of business owners in the middle of this pandemic especially, your vision probably shouldn't have shifted much, if any, because that's three to five years into the future. Right. Strategy has probably changed because how you're going to get there definitely has changed. Hmm. So who do you think is or was the most effective visionary leader um, historically or in business or politics or whatever? Well, the one that I, that I absolutely love is Martin Luther King Jr., his famous I Have a Dream speech. The thing about that speech that was so unbelievable is that you could see it, you could smell it, you could taste it. It was so visual. And, and he talked about a, a future state that was very compelling. I mean, every time I watch that speech, and I've posted it numerous times on Martin Luther King uh, Jr. Day is that, it, you know, just, it's so inspiring. I mean, I just, I tear up when I hear that because, you know, obviously we are a long, long ways from realizing that vision, but he held up that vision. I think that's why he was such a threat, why he was so dangerous to the status quo and, and to the existing power structures and why ultimately he had to go because that right. vision was powerful. Right. Wow. Yeah. In fact, you have a quote in your book, vision and I'm going to bastardize this a little bit. Vision is a clear, inspiring, practical, and attractive picture of your organization's, and we could say country or whatever, yeah. nonprofit's future. Without this, you're effectively voting for the status quo, which is what you just said. Uh, you know, I guess as a country, we could say that we have settled or we have voted for uh, or been in denial about things to the point that we are living in nothing but the status quo until recently. Uh, it's really true. You know, I've, I kind of was hoping with the pandemic 
and maybe even with the protests, that we're shaking the box enough that somebody will arise that can give us clarity about a vision. I mean, the great leaders in history, you don't have to, you know, there's been Republicans, there's been Democrats, or, you know, on both sides of the aisle. But to get above the kind of petty bickering and, and these, these very small story issues and to get to something bigger that people can unite around. Like I've even thought, and again, you just, I have to preface what I'm about to say. Remember, when it comes to race relations, I don't know Jack. So that should be a, that should be a hashtag that I should be forced to wear on my T-shirt. Mm-hmm. Got it. Having said that, having said that, I think it would be awesome to get people in a room and say, what does a just society look like? You know, let's talk vision. Talk, forget how we're going to get there. We don't, we don't want to argue about how, what's, the, what's the role of the government, what's the role of the church, what's the role of, role of private inter- enterprise. But just what, what would it look like if we could wave a magic wand and three to five years from now, you know, get everything that we wanted? What would that look like? If we could do that and get agreement around that, then we could have the debate about strategy. And I think it would be amazing. Hey, everybody. One of the lessons I've learned over the years is that not everybody benefits from a traditional 50-minute counseling session. And this is why some people can go to couples therapy or personal counseling for a long time and never really get anywhere. This is why I'm such a believer of intensive counseling and my friends at Restoring the Soul in Colorado, created by my longtime friend Michael Cusick to help couples or individuals experience deep change and have day blocks over one or two weeks. Now listen, if you can't wait months or years to get to the bottom of an issue or to experience breakthrough, you need to get in touch with my friend Michael and his extraordinary team of counselors at Restoring the Soul. If you're looking to get out of the rut you're in but can't wait months or years, call Restoring the Soul today for a free consultation with Michael's staff. Call 303-932-9777 and learn how their intensive counseling process can help you. As a special bonus, just for Typology listeners, make sure to visit www.restoringthesoul.com slash typology to download their PDF called Five Ways Unaddressed Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationships. So here's a question. If you could stand, in, if you had 10 minutes to stand in front of Congress, and uh, deliver uh, a meditation or a lecture on visionary leadership, what would you say? What advice would you give them? What practical things? I mean, you just gave one, but like what, what would you get up there and, and tell them as someone who has now deeply studied visionary-driven leaders? Well, I think that what I would say is that you've got to decide whether you're going to be a visionary leader or not. You know, if, are you satisfied with the status quo? How long must this dysfunction go on? You guys have more power than you realize, and it's time you start using it. Not to beat, you know, your opponents into the mud, but to cast a vision for a bigger, better, brighter future for all Americans. And to fold everybody into that conversation. You know, I don't care if it was, you know, Ronald Reagan or JFK or Bill Clinton or whomever. You know, those were people that had a vision. You could disagree with the particulars of their policies, and certainly they didn't agree on, 
on everything, but they, they were able to capture the popular imagination. And, and it wasn't about what they were against. It was about what they were for. Mm. And, I, and I think that it's, it's critically important that we have some people in Washington right now, some senators, Congress people, people that will stand up and say, yeah, yeah, we know what you're, you're against. You're basically against everything that the opposing party proposes. But that is a very, very low standard. What are you for? You know, I, th- I think the, the, the stage is set for somebody to step forward and to provide that kind of visionary leadership. Hmm. Now, how does that translate into companies, organizations, uh, you know, uh, you know, everything you've just said, how does it translate? Okay, so what you got to do is develop a vision script. So I don't talk about a vision statement. You know, a vision statement, sometimes we think of that as this short, pithy, brief slogan almost that you could put on a coffee mug or a t-shirt. The problem is it's not robust enough to inform sort of the operational kinds of things that you have to do on a day-to-day basis. So when I talk about a vision script, I'm talking about a three to five page document. It does, as you mentioned, outlines a clear, inspiring, practical, and attractive picture of your organization's future. It describes reality as you see it three to five years from now, and it's stated in the present tense as though it's already happened. So that's my definition of a vision script. Now, in business, every business owner I know, every person involved in business I know, is overwhelmed on the edge of burnout. People are busier than ever. One of the reasons they're busy is because they don't have clarity of vision. When you have clarity about the vision you've been called to achieve, all of a sudden you have a filter on all of your activity. You can eliminate sideways energy, busy work, and focus on the work that drives toward the vision and only focus on that. It gives you a filter for saying no to the wrong opportunities and yes to the right ones. The more successful you become, and I'm sure, Ian, you've experienced this in your business life, you know, the more successful you become, the more opportunities that you attract. But the problem is distractions show up at your doorstep disguised as opportunities. And without a vision, you don't have a way to discern the difference between the two. So I tell the story in the book of starting my publishing company. I started the publishing company in 1986 with a business partner. And we were immediately successful because we published the autobiography of Oral Hershiser, who was the then famed pitcher of the Los Angeles Dodgers. They had just won the World Series and he was a household name and on the cover of every magazine. So we published his autobiography. It ended up on the New York Times list where it remained for weeks and weeks and weeks. And it generated a ton of cash and a ton of opportunities. Before we knew it, without a vision, we were publishing reference books, children's books, gift books, coloring books, even a big Bible project. And our, our focus was fractured. Our resources got depleted. And that company went broke. Not because we didn't have enough cash, although that was ultimately the symptom, but because our opportunities didn't have a filter. There was just, there was no vision and we were pursuing everything in every possible direction. And that company went bust. Mm. You know, I think some people think that only 
certain numbers on the Enneagram are natural visionary leaders, you know, and the ones that people always bring up are threes, right? Um, and while other types might be better managers uh, than visionary leaders. Now, do you think that's true or do you think any number on the Enneagram could be a visionary leader? Well, first of all, let me just say that we do need managers. So I, I, I talk about this in chapter one, the difference between leaders and managers and, and basically the difference is vision, but I don't denigrate managers. You know, managers mm -hmm. are important, right? So um, yes, I do believe that it can be any Enneagram number. Now, let me just take this to the to a slightly sort of out of the Enneagram conversation, because a lot of people would think, not knowing the Enneagram, that the more charismatic you are, the more likely you are to have a vision. You know, if you're the Steve Jobs, well, of course. Right. A, you know, you've got, a seven. Yeah, he's got more charisma than is allowed by law. But <laughs> I, I, like what, I like what Jim Collins said about charismatic leadership. He said, yes, you can succeed as a charismatic leader, but it's more difficult. Hmm. And I think it's true because you tend to rely not on systems, not on processes, but on your own charisma. Now, when Steve Jobs died, everybody in, you know, on Wall Street, everybody in the tech press said, well, that's the end of Apple. They got a lot of cash, so they'll probably coast for a while. But basically, you know, they're going to be the soulless enterprise because their visionary leader is gone. Tim Cook became the new leader. Totally different personality. But I would argue equally, maybe even more visionary than Steve Jobs. He had vision about supply chain, about process optimization. And if you look at what has happened to the market cap of that company since Tim took it over, you know, it's like a 300% increase over how Steve left it. So two very different personalities. And I think, I think it really boils down to, Ian, to if you have a recipe for how to create the vision, which is what I tried to provide in the Vision Driven Leader, I think anybody who's willing to take the time and be thoughtful and reflective about the future and can connect with what they really want and get clarity on that can lead with vision. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you said that and that because I think it, it really gets to a few things. One is, I, I think about uh, Bill Gates of five. Have you watched the, the documentary on Bill I Gates have. yet? Unbelievable, right? Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. So he's a five. And now people would not think a five could be a leader at that level, right? I mean, his Microsoft years were unbelievable, right? Um, people would think, I mean, let's face it, sevens, like a Steve Jobs, was uh, possibly a very unhealthy seven who has spent a lot of time in one, kind of mm -hmm. a crazy one land. Um, he brought a lot of charisma. He brought a lot of, um, as you said, but also a lot of expertise to the table and vision as well. I mean, you know, he, we can't fault him for that. I think our best presidents have been nines. You said that to me before, and I think that's so fascinating. Oh, First yeah. Those nines. Yeah, well, think about, and, and, and you know, we, you said this earlier about Martin Luther King, and I think this is true about casting of, you know, I think one of the things that visionary leaders do is they don't try to come in the front door of people's uh, intellect. They, they come in through the back door of their imaginations. Love that. They mm -hmm. sneak up on the imagination, and they, 
that's where the real change takes place, right? A visionary leader changes people's imaginations, not their opinions, not their minds, but ultimately their imaginations. Um, and just to add something to that, their, their perception of what's possible. Yes. Because JFK was that kind of leader. Mm. So he stood up before a joint session of Congress, and, and his vision was that we would put a man on the mood, moon within a decade. Right. And, and it was so out there because even NASA opposed him at the beginning. They said, you got to be kidding me. We don't, we don't have this technology. Where do you think we're going to get this technology? Right. right. And it was just this incredibly compelling vision that drove the technology. Yeah. 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 You look at, uh, I think about Ronald Reagan, who was a classic nine. Okay. Mm. I think no question. Um, and he, his, his speech about, you know, the, the city, you know, the city on the hill. In fact, I would argue that sometimes American leaders or presidents, part of their job is less about policy walking around. You know what I mean? Like we've had, you know, it's really about appealing to the imaginations and the better angels of the yes. people they serve. Mm -hmm. you know? I, I remember when Ronald Reagan gave that speech, it's morning in America. Yes. You know, that was just like, everybody could see that. I mean, you, you know what it's like when you get up in the morning, it's a beautiful morning. And everybody liked to think that, you know, we, we, we've got another day, we've got another opportunity. And he captured people's imagination with that simple metaphor. Yeah. Now, it's interesting, Mike, and I'm not, uh, again, this, isn't a, this is not a knock on threes. I know plenty of three visionary leaders like yourself. But recently, I worked with two seven entrepreneurs. Now, as you know, sevens are consummate entrepreneurs. They have great vision. They're charismatic. They inspire people. Um, they, uh, they're kind of like the guy in the music man that everybody follows because they have a great idea. You know, they, they have all the, and they can take complex ideas in large bodies of knowledge and then collide them and come up with new ideas that nobody else ever saw. Mm. New opportunities nobody ever saw. In both cases, at about year five in the organization, they realized that their being CEO was the worst thing they ever did, could, well, could do going into the future, right? That they were terrible managers. They were great visionaries, terrible managers. And in both instances, they hired threes. Mm -hmm. Now, now why that. would, why, 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 okay, tell me why. Well, I would, I would see that because threes, are, are people that, that usually have pretty extraordinary focus and kind of an achievement orientation. So you're going to see progress. Whereas I think the sevens, you know, and, and of course all this is at the risk of stereotyping, but you know, sevens, because they have an idea a minute without a vision, then right. they deplete the organization's resources and run everybody ragged mm. and, and, you know, everything's going in, in five different directions and nothing is moving forward like it should. And I've worked with a lot of sevens too, and they're initially very inspiring. And, and if they're not careful, if they're not disciplined, if they don't have uh, colleagues that surround them that can kind of, you know, compensate for where they're weak, they can wear out an organization and leave everybody yeah. exhausted. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. I, I, um, in both instances, by the way, with both of these companies, they grew by like 
200 plus percent when the three became the CEO. Wow. And they moved the seven over in the organization to do new vision work. You know what I'm saying? Perfect. Like new vision work, or they bought them out and they left to go start something else somewhere else, you know, and do, do something altogether new. But I thought, boy, that was really self-aware on the parts of the, on the part of the sevens to say, yes. you know, I'm, I'm a visionary in the early stages. I can get people on board with a vision, but when it comes to execution, when it comes to actually making this thing happen with wheels, I need to get somebody like a three in the driver's seat. Yeah, the, the, the sevens can get bored easily. And unfortunately, okay. and I have some of this myself, even as a three, where I love to gin things up and yeah. get them going. But, you know, unfortunately, uh, things take longer and cost more than you think to bring them into fruition. And that's when I start to lose interest too. But I've just built my team so that I can stay in my sweet spot and focus on where I'm strongest and other people can take over and run the thing all the way down, you know, to the goal line. So as a three and as a visionary, driven leader yourself, what blind spots have you discovered that other threes could benefit from knowing about? Well, you can also exhaust an organization. You know, I think if, if threes have a superpower, one of them is stamina, and they think that everybody's wired that same way. And I've really, really had to discipline myself to observe boundaries. Like early in my career, I didn't do that at all. So early in my career, I didn't have any boundaries. You know, if I didn't get it done during the day at the office, then I'd drug the laptop home and cracked it after we had dinner and kept working, you know, into the wee hours of the night or work through the weekend. Or, you know, the other thing I would always do, I never went on a vacation and didn't check my email. Mm. It was just like, I would get up at 4.30 or 5 in the morning while the family's still asleep and work for three or four hours and then, you know, do the vacation stuff. But even then, my head wasn't really in the game. And so to set myself some boundaries, huge. This was huge for me to say, I'm going to quit work at 6 p.m. I'm not going to work on the weekends. When I go on vacation, I'm not going to work. I'm not going to think about work. I'm not going to read about work. I'm not going to talk about work. You know, I have these, these little rules that have helped me. But like last year, for example, and I think this speaks to the power of a vision. We have clarity of vision, everybody in the organization aligned around the vision and everybody executing against the vision and not doing a lot of busy work. Last year, and I've told you this before, our, our business grew over 60% and I worked or took off 162 days. Mm. And I, need a, I need a strategic <laughs> vision. <laughs> Well, it, it, it does help you achieve more by doing less, but boundaries and constraints are our friends, but that's right. got to come out of a vision, not just some kind of, you know, discipline, but it's got to be connected to some bigger thing you're trying to accomplish. Hmm. You know, I want to just pop, pop back to what's happening in our, our current culture because it, we have a dearth of visionary leadership. I think we have a lot of, I, I, I do think we have, a lot of would-be managers trying to function as visionary leaders in certain areas of, of, of government. But so here's a really dangerous question. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. If you had 10 minutes in the Oval Office, what would you say as an expert um, in visionary leadership? 
man. And don't give me that. Don't give me that Trudeau. Twenty-one seconds of silence. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's what I would say. I would say that um, you know we we need a uniter in chief. Mm. We we need somebody that can see the bigger vision and 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 create something that appeals to people regardless of where they are on the political spectrum. I'm not saying policy is not important. But if we don't regain our sense of vision for a story that's bigger than our partisan, petty politics, then our country is going to self-destruct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like it's not the president's job. And I don't mean this as political commentary, really. I'm not trying to be partisan myself. But I think it's, it's the president's job not to get into the weeds on the policy or to attack his opponents. But I think, you know, the first thing I would say, listen. Listen. You, can, you cannot change what you don't understand. And if there's anything I've learned in the last week and a half, I don't understand enough to be making recommendations as to what we should do. I, I'm like on a, a listening tour. I'm, tr- I'm trying to make up in my own life the, the, the lack of education that I got as a white American. Because listen to this. I don't know if it's the same for you, Ian, but outside of of Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks, I don't remember anything in my formal education that that talked to me about the 450 years of oppression of our black brothers and sisters in this country. And now I'm reading this wonderful book called The Warmth of Other Sons, and it's basically African-American history seen through the lens of three specific African-Americans. And the writer is uh, amazing. But I'm viscerally connecting with it, and I'm seeing it. But until I understand that, and I'll never understand it as a, as a white male, but until I have at least some modicum of understanding and some mm-hmm. sense of empathy, I can't be proposing something different. And I think, and I, and I do say this in The Vision Driven Leader, that... People want to be heard. In other words, if, if I'm in a situation that's highly volatile, like I'm, I'm the executive chair of a seminary that's had a kind of a history of a lot of conflict, and thank God, most of that's been resolved now. But my predecessor, and this is risky for me to say this, but my predecessor kind of fed that conflict and would become one of the partisans. The thing I felt like my responsibility to do was to listen carefully to both Mm -hmm. sides and make sure that they had the opportunity to be fully expressed so that when when somebody in in a heated board meeting would go off and give a speech and state in very volatile terms what they believed, my role was not to oppose that, but to say to them, is there anything else? Right. You know, is there anything else? Because here's, here's what everybody, here's what adults know. Adults know that not every decision is going to go their way. But if they feel like they've been heard and if they've been considered thoughtfully, respectfully, 
they're much more likely to align even with the decision they don't agree with. Mm -hmm. But what we have now is people that are just, they look like they're listening, Mm. but they're simply waiting for their turn to pontificate. Mm. And I just think that in the Oval Office, and again, um, not talking about the present occupants specifically, but to anybody that would dare to occupy, be foolish enough to occupy that, that job. You know, I think that person has got to be a, be a listener, has got to be a healer, has got to be a bridge builder, builder has, got to, has, got to be fun, has got to take the Venn diagram and find out where the overlap is between the two positions and say, okay, look, we disagree on this, we disagree on this, but can we agree on this and how can we drive this agenda forward? I think one of the worst things that a visionary leader, and now you're the expert on this, you've written, you know, the Vision Driven Leaders, uh, new, this great new book on visionary leadership. But I think one of the worst things that uh, a visionary leader can do is fall prey to nostalgia. Yes. And, and the, now, again, I'm not going to reveal my politics here, but this is what I always struggled with when I saw Make America Great Again. Mm-hmm. It was looking backwards. Yep. And I think visionary leaders are people who are mindful of the past, perhaps grateful for the past, but are always looking forward uh, and casting a vision to others of a, a preferred future. Yes. Some preferred future that uh, will um, make the world, the company, the organization, not just more efficient or effective, but to be a life-changing force for good in the world. Does that, does that idea of nostalgia of kind of being a, an enemy of leadership resonate with you at all? Totally. Yeah, because first of all, you can never return to the past. We all tend to romanticize the past. Yes, we do. And we need to be informed by the past. We need to respect the past, but we need to move to a future that hasn't happened yet. Mm. Because guess what? That's what's happening anyway. Right. <laughs> you know, and right. so that's what, that's the subtle difference between make America great again and it's morning in America. Mm. Yes. That's, that's, that's something new. You know, you wake up with expectancy, not quite sure what's going to happen today, but it's a new right. morning and we have a sense of expectancy. Mm. And so, yes, and so one of the things I, I talk about in the book is kind of change management because anytime you're proposing a different future, it's going to unsettle people, mm-hmm. right? Because it's in, in some ways, your vision is a referendum on the past. And so how do you manage that? How do you keep from insulting people? So one of the things I, I realized when I went to Thomas Nelson Publishers as the CEO um, one of my executives assistant after I had sent out a, uh, a memo about a ch- change that I was going to implement, she wrote back, she thought to her boss, but she did one of those reply alls. And so it came back to me. And, and so what she said was, she said, why can't he leave things alone? Yes. They're fine, yes. They're fine the way they are. Mm. And so I had a conversation with her. And of course she was, totally embarrassed. She thought she was going to get fired because she had dared to say this to me. And I said, look, I said, I want you to know that everything that's happened at Thomas Nelson Publishers up until this point, I respect. It's been useful. Every, everything that you resist in the status quo, 
was at one time a brilliant solution to a problem that preceded it. Right? And sometimes the people that are in the room when you're talking are people that came up with that brilliant solution. And now if you're not careful, you just kind of pour water on it and say, you know, that's, that's not acceptable anymore. Mm. So what you have to do is respect that past. And, and I like to use the language of seasons. And to say, for example, to say, you know, that thing that we've been doing for the last 20 years, that has really served us well. That's gotten us to where we are today. And I thank God that whoever it was that came up with that came up with that solution because it's, it's really worked. But we're moving into a different season. And so we're going to change. And, and here's the other thing I like to say in change management too. Here's what's not going to change. Hmm. People can usually process change as long as it's in the context, as long as you give them a foundation of what's not going to change. If they feel like everything is changing and there's nothing going to stay the same, then some people just get unbelievably resistance. Now, I, I, I love change. You know, I like to just shake the box just to shake the box. But I'm in the minority. Most people don't like that. That's right. So I think you have to reassure people, like even when I stand up and, and when I first read our vision script for Michael Hyatt and Company, and even when I read it every year, or when we went into the pandemic, you know, I said, hey guys, let me just, tell, let me just start with what's not going to change. Lay all that out. Everybody gets to relax. Take a deep breath. Okay, now let's talk about the few things that are going to change. And I'm going to give you the why behind the what so you can process this. Hmm. Man, I love the deliberateness of, of, of that thought. And I'm, the thing I'm really excited, Michael, uh, about the vision-driven leader, this new book of yours, is called Serendipity. But it's coming. Uh, I think it's... As people can tell from where our conversation has gone, it's a much bigger conversation, right? Mm -hmm. it, this is not just a book that's going to help organizations and companies. Of course it is, right? It's aimed at that. Yeah. It's, it's, but I just think the whole conversation about visionary leadership is something that is much bigger. The conversation now is much bigger and so much of what you've written in the book will be applicable outside the mm. audience that perhaps it was originally intended for. Mm. What do you think? I, I think you're right. You know, I think, you know, we're, we're all familiar with the, the Bible verse that says, without vision, the people perish. And I think we're living in a nation right now that is starved for vision. Yes. Where, where people are, are desperate to believe that the future can be better, mm. that it can be different. Mm -hmm. and, and what we so desperately need, and that's why I think we're at such a historic moment right now, because the thing that I'm seeing is kind of an awakening, you know, where people are saying, the status quo is not acceptable. It's got to change. And what we need now is people to rise up and show the way, articulate that future, point out the destination, and get people aligned around that so we can move in and, and make a difference. So that, you know, my, my greatest fear of this moment is that we get really enthusiastic for a couple of weeks and then we just kind of go to sleep again until the next eruption. And I think it's going to take all of us to be determined to sustain this. And vision can do that if we'll, if we'll take the time to create a vision. And as leaders, if we'll take the time to continually repeat that vision because vision 
Andy Stanley says this, vision leaks. And so I imagine people going around with buckets that are empty. And our job is, as leaders is to keep pouring that vision in, especially when we encounter obstacles, when we hit a setback, to just keep pouring the vision. And no, we got to keep going. We got to get up. We got to pick ourselves up. We got to keep going. Yeah, it's a setback. It's real. It hurts. We got to keep going. We got to keep fighting. We got to keep pressing toward the future. Mm. Well, on that note, I can't think of a better place probably for us to end. Mike Hyatt, the vision-driven leader, 10 questions to focus your efforts, energize your team, and scale your business. And I would argue uh, to give us a really powerful meditation about where we are culturally and the kind of leadership we need. I mean, Mike, I just think the timing of this is divine's a strange word, but you know, it's so timely because the conversation about, about visionary leadership is so important right now. And I'm so grateful that you've written again, the vision driven leader, 10 questions to focus your efforts, energize your team and scale your business. Mike, what, what, what else is going on that we want people to know about that you're doing? Well, I would say, first of all, if you buy the book, wherever you buy the book, go to visiondrivenleader.com slash typology. That's a special page that we've created for your listeners so that they can get the bonuses that we make available that make creating a vision and implementing it faster and easier. So we have one tool there called the vision scripture tool, which will essentially take you by the hand and walk you through the process as an online tool. It's absolutely free. All these bonuses are free, almost $400 worth of bonuses free. Just buy the book, bring the receipt back to that, that website and turn it in and you got the bonuses. Wow. I'm on. I'm in. In fact, you'll be proud to know, look, sitting right here on my desk is my full focus planner. <laughs> I love seeing that. Yes, and I've watched the video about how to use it. So you 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 must you must know that I am, you know, I have bought in. <laughs> I'm, I might have to swear you in as an honorary three. <laughs> <laughs> it's unlikely it'll last for very long, I fear. Mike, thanks for being on Typology. You're always an inspiration. I'm particularly inspired by this book. Love to Gail, all the girls. And you who are listening to us here on Typology, you know how I'm going to end this. The words of the great Oscar Wilde, be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.